But now, Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, remembering that all scripture indeed is breathed out by you, and that you have made it to be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Bless us this morning, Father, in our hearing, and make us, O Lord, more and more those who are complete, equipped for every good work, even those most common things, O Lord, that you have granted to us. Watch over us, O Lord, and let us show forth Jesus and all things for his sake. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, if you'll please turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. We will be looking at verses 16 through 24. This is found in your ESV Pew Bibles on page 816. If you are able, if you will please stand. And I would also encourage you, we will not be doing much moving around like we did last week, but nevertheless, I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open because there is a depth that we will find within our passage this morning that is a good thing for you to look through and consider that these are the words, not of the pastor nor his mind, but this is the word of God. And so let us hear it with great reverence and lay these truths upon our hearts as we seek to practice them in our lives with exceeding great joy. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have still remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. We've been making our way very slowly, it seems, through chapter 11, where we are seeing various responses to the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are two verses so far that have been of particular importance that I'd like to go back and revisit very briefly. The first of those is verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And that's because Jesus is saying this, because there will be times, as we have noted with John the Baptist, when we ourselves are perplexed because Christ is not saying and doing the things that we expect him to say and do. And what he is telling us here is make sure that you do not allow this to cause you to stumble or to fall into some kind of sin, thinking less of Christ and his word, and reject him. But we notice as Jesus turns to the crowds now, he uh, who have begun, or who have already heard the question of John and have begun to look on him with some degree of criticism and scorn, that Jesus goes on to make it clear that the mission of John 
was simply to prepare the way and to point to the Christ. And that means that if we are going to take offense at John, that we certainly do not understand what he was called to do, because if we are offended by him, then we are also offended by our Lord. That their ministries are inseparably linked. Something that is very obvious as we note in the same fact that they, or in the fact that they preach the exact same message, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven, heaven is near. And that's why the second verse that we will see this, or we have seen over the past few weeks in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's why we understand that this, we need to understand that this is a command. And yes, those who hear should respond, as we saw last week in verse 12, by taking the kingdom of heaven by force. But notice that it still, nevertheless, involves hearing and repentance. Repentance, the idea in that word, which in the Greek is metanoia, means a change of heart and mind. Turning from where we were, that leads us to leave our sin behind and lay hold of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to note that because he begins with the understanding of what is being said. Of us understanding what comes forth from the lips of Christ. And us not refusing it because it's not what we want, but because we are aware by faith which is something that is necessary for true repentance, that by faith we flee to Christ, whose atoning work on the cross cleanses us from sin and brings to us the joy of our salvation. Dear friends, one of the things that we're going to see this morning is that hearing is essential. And that hearing of which I speak is not just our brains having vibrations go across our, our, our brains, interpreting the things that have run across our eardrums, but it's speaking to us of a spiritual discernment. Not a human or worldly wisdom, but one that comes from God, meaning that ears of faith are given by God so that we can hear, and this begins to impact the heart, and it brings forth a true change. In fact, one of the details that we see in Luke's Gospel... Uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 29 and 30, is what we see actually taking place here in Matthew's gospel, a, a bit of parenthetical statement. In verse 29, that we're told that when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. Notice that what he's saying here, that they declared God to be right, because he is the one who had enabled them to take the message to heart. And to understand this, that this is from God. Not just someone else, not just John's opinion. That this is from God, and because of this situation being what it is, that they need to repent. Because the king had come, and was at that moment, nevertheless, establishing the kingdom of heaven. We imagine that the hearing... That, that clarification that Christ is bringing on this occasion when he's speaking to those crowds of people who were critical of John. Now it turns their minds away from the seas that God is good and true and gives to them a great deal of comfort. But I also want us to know, and, uh, from Luke chapter 7, now verse 30, we see something else. That something else takes place here in verse 30. But the Pharisees, the lawyers, rejected the purpose of God for themselves having not been baptized by him. 
that they had come in awe of John. They were thrilled to see where the crowds were going, and much like Pharisees, they just kind of follow where the action is. But in time, nevertheless, the Pharisees and their disciples' enthusiasm began to wane, and that led them to reject. In fact, some of the statements that we see of the crowds previous to this are actually influenced by the Pharisees who have come back, and, well, John's just nothing. And I want you to note that because there are many things that nevertheless contribute to what we're seeing here today. We look to Matthew chapter 13, which will be in, it won't be very long from now. When we get to the parables, we'll be seeing that there are ways that we don't listen. Sometimes just because we just don't care. Sometimes because we are overburdened with anxiety. Sometimes we're just too wildly excited to be able to have any grounding uh, in our Christian faith to be able to take hold of the truth of Christ. But this morning, I want us to know that what we see with the result of what we're finding in our context this morning is that Jesus tells us that the religious leaders of the day very simply, are playing games with God. That they're, they're not being sincere, they're not being honest, that they're playing games with God. In fact, notice the description of juveniles, little children that we see in verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like little children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. You, you've seen your kids do stuff like this, that uh, sometimes they see other adults doing things, whether it be a fireman or whether it be someone who's working in a store like a baker or a nurse or something, and uh, they imitate adults in their play. And here on this occasion, we see that some are uh, wanting to play wedding. And we hear that in verse 17, we played the flute for you. Uh, it's, It's a joyful thing. Let's play this very fun game. This lively music is being played, and we just want everyone to be happy, but there's a group of other people over here saying, eh, I don't really want to do that at all. And so they say, okay, well, if you don't want to be happy, we'll play sad, and we'll play funeral. Uh, You're the most grumpy. You can be the corpse. Uh, But understand that uh, that's where we get the idea. We sang a dirge for you. Uh, This lamentable song that everything here seems to be pointing to this. But again, even as kids often do, they again say, yeah, this is not really something we want to be involved in. But I want you to note that because as the ones who originally suggested this, have it put forth to them that uh, these two ideas that they're dissatisfied and they begin to complain, we played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. You did not want to play along with what we want to do. And things because of that are not the way we want them to be. Now, mind you, that's something that we find something of, uh, true of the world, the world, that system that does not regard God. But it wants us to enjoy or wants us to join in with what they are doing, whether it be laughing or weeping on cue. And if we don't, it's really met with some degree of anger and slander. And I think that that's particularly often found as it comes toward the church itself. 
that they'll tell you on the surface many times, well, Jesus is a great teacher. The Bible is good. It's got many wise and useful things within it. And the salvation that you talk about is nice, well, uh, until we refuse to play their game, which involves dancing and rejoicing over their sin and not losing it. Or weeping over the idea of having to be as righteous as our Lord God is righteous through what Christ gives to us. Well, that's not the way I want it to be. I I want it to be something of myself. But let us understand that while this is something that we would expect from the world, that they're always balking against what we find in our Lord Jesus Christ, understand that it can also be true of what we find of ourselves in the church. And I want you to note how Christ describes this particular generation. Describes them as children again because they have been looking for the Elijah who would precede the long-awaited Christ. But notice that when both arrive, neither are to their liking. And the way they're referring to John here in verse 18, that for John came neither eating or drinking, you say, as a demon. Now, John was stern. We know he was austere. He lived out in the desert. He had rough clothing. He was kind of a tough guy. And yes, he needed a little bit of work on his social skills. Because, brothers and sisters, we see that the whole ministry that he's always calling out sin. And he never wants to have fun or just kind of cut loose and enjoy himself. And because they see this of John, their response to him, well, he's too stern. It must be because he had a demon. And yeah, he he did act a little weird. His uh, mannerisms were strange, but he was also kind of distant. Much like what we saw the man in the tombs who had a demon who Jesus went out to. But let us note, on the other hand, that though Christ was very different, he was very social. He was very relational. And while you would think that they would have appreciated the fact that he is coming with a gospel of grace to these people and even giving signs that clarify that it is going to be of God and not of you. Nevertheless, we see in verse 19 that they continue to criticize him as he says that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friends of tax collectors and sinners. Do you note that? Because sometimes when the world... And even the church derides you that it can come out as kind of a nice compliment, something to say, yeah, I'll own that. In fact, it's William Hendrickson who said that the friend of sinners and tax collectors is really one of Christ's most hope-inspiring and soul-stirring titles. I want you to know that because the religious leaders knew the reason why he was with Sinners and tax collectors, but nevertheless, they condemned him because he seemed in their minds just to be a little too social and social with the wrong people. And granted, today we tend to chalk these same things up to perhaps, well, one was an introvert, one was an extrovert. But let us understand that the problem here is not with personality, but rather in the fact that it rests with the fact that they had not taken into account what was appropriate for the individual ministries of John and Jesus. Again, if you'll flip back with me one page to chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Here we're told that the Pharisees saw Jesus reclining at table with the tax collectors and sinners. And they said to his disciples, they don't even go to him, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when they heard it, 
He said, Jesus answers them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, most likely on the uh, pressing of the Pharisees, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. And I want us to hear that because it, what he's saying here is it, it is appropriate for the disciples of John to fast because he is preparing for the work and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But understand that while the disciples of Jesus will have their day to fast, that it is absolutely wrong in this context at this moment for them to mourn because salvation has come near. That Christ is doing a work that shows what they have been waiting for, what they have desired, shows what God has promised he will do. And I want you to note that because both of them are preaching again the same message that the repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Make your heart ready because Jesus is currently engaged in this work to free man from his sin. And you need to turn from your sin and to embrace him. And that's what we hear with John and Jesus. That they didn't come to beat around the bush. Yes, Jesus is a little more free to go. But he's going to where the people are sinners who need to hear the gospel. People who will receive it, not like the religious leaders. He's not here to play games. Neither is John here to, like our Lord Jesus Christ, here to follow the agenda of man. That both came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And as much as the people loved the result of it, in truth, they were doing everything they could to avoid it. Brothers and sisters, that is a good thing for us to keep in mind and a reason for us to be careful. Because we are a people who can always find something. In fact, it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who has said in the past that every minister, if he is a faithful preacher of the word, will be subject to the charge of both antinomianism and legalism. Antinomianism being lawlessness, meaning that you are preaching the free grace of God, justification by faith alone. And people will say, well, that's just easy believism. It's just, you know, there's nothing attached to it. It's like, yes, in fact, it is. But it almost comes off as if you're not taking it seriously. But understand that when the minister says and calls you, according to Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, they will say, well, he's strict. He's trying to place us back under the law and deny grace itself. Now, mind you, the interesting thing is I've actually had this happen to me, not here, but happened to me in the same sermon. It's interesting because I was thinking, it's like, okay, well, I know when that person fell asleep and when the other one woke up. But I want us to understand that with that being true, as we see in Christ, we see with other ministers, we need to be careful. Because it's easy to become like contrary children who just don't want to turn to God from their sin or heed his call. This morning, perhaps you think, well, this doesn't apply to me. I ask you, what are the excuses that you go to when the word of Christ knocks heavily upon that door where you know you're harboring your sin? And do you recognize the areas where you do struggle to humble yourself and to repent? 
And are we taking into account the responses that we have? The sharp things we do, even the subtle things we do, when the Word of God does not match up with our own practice and what we ourselves are willing to permit. And in those times, do we speculate? Do we criticize? Or do we humble ourselves before God and by His grace fall before Him in repentance? Because there are many in this life who would tell us that, you know, if Jesus were the one preaching today, I would have received this gospel. I wouldn't have been like those in that generation. Well, let us understand that this generation is not too different from that one. And if we wouldn't receive the gospel from John or Jesus, we need to know that we're really not any different at all. Because gospel will never conform to the way we want things to be. And the reason for that is, is because that's a false gospel. It's something that teaches us something untrue. It's something that comes from the heart of man, meaning that the gospel of Christ will be something that always offends us because it's not our truth. It's God's truth. And for our salvation, it speaks to his kingdom and his work in Christ. And I want you to know that because as that unshakable reality collides with our own sinful condition, it will seem very harsh. But it's because the message that our Lord brings, the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost, that He came to sinners and we are those. And that message depends on the painful truth that we can do nothing to save ourselves. And that's why we naturally resist the grace and the truth of our Christ because it is not ours. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful this morning because there are many people who think that they are wise if they avoid the call to repentance, that they don't need to trouble themselves. They don't need to bruise their tender self-esteem. But let us hear as Jesus tells us and take to heart what we find at the end of verse 19. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. That wisdom or biblical wisdom it is understood to be inseparably united to faith and repentance. This is how it takes legs and goes. And despite the difficulty, yes, that it does bring to us, it avails itself of great benefit or we avail ourselves of great benefit as it leads us to repentance because we understand that when we turn to Christ, that we never cease to have Christ. That when we trust in Him and take hold of Him, as He calls us to, instead of clinging to our own sin, we never cease to have Him. And I ask us, brothers and sisters today, is repentance just something we do? Or is it the prevailing attitude It tends to characterize our very lives. Because in a real sense, repentance is like medicine. That we will get the taste of a bitter judgment that we would rather avoid. But because we have been told that this is of benefit to us, we can understand that as much of the judgment that we may taste on a temporal level, that we are never going to drink the true and full cup of the judgment of God that Christ drank. And that is why he holds out the promises we will see next week. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest to your souls. That's why he is able to say that to us. 
And so, brothers and sisters, we need to stop playing games with our God. We need to hear the word of our God despite who it is who may be speaking it to us. Because let us understand that character does not always make or break what is being said. Let us understand that just as John the Baptist, yes, was stern, that he did have a relational side. He had disciples. He could call people to himself. But let us also understand that as Jesus was very relational, as he was gentle and kind to sinners, let us understand that he could also be terribly, terribly stern. And that's what we note as he addresses the avoidance of repentance by the religious leaders and refers to it as a dangerous game. In fact, it's J.C. Ryle who says that there is great wickedness in our impenitence. There's danger in us clinging to the sin that we should be running from for our lives. And this is why Christ denounces those cities who have been witnesses to his ministry. Notice in verse 21, the wording here of denounce is actually the word scolding. It's a sharp and pointed rebuke of the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida because they had witnessed the ministry of Christ firsthand as Jesus passed through it to go to other places throughout the entire region of Galilee where he was. But let us understand that while Chorazin and Bethsaida saw the most of these, notice that he also mentions to us Capernaum, the base of operations for his Galilean ministry and the place where he called home. That is, Chorazin and Bethsaida saw the most, let us understand that they would have seen exponentially more. In fact, if you had been a resident of Capernaum during this time, you could have been just going about your daily life and you would have heard, most likely, Christ preaching the gospel and seeing miracles that confirm that gospel on a very regular basis. Or at very least, you would have heard it, nevertheless, from your neighbor or in the synagogue or from your own family. And I want you to note that that is a great privilege that has been given to these three cities, Capernaum even more than any others there he, where he has gone. And I want us to see that because instead of repenting, what did they do with the privilege that they had of Christ coming near to them? Is that it went to their head. They began to think, well, this is something that's never going to end. We're always going to enjoy this. It's always going to be there. And if you think about Jesus healing all kind of people, I've heard one commentator say in the past that the level of illnesses and afflictions during that time in this region probably would have dropped significantly with all the work that he was doing. But while they were thinking, well, we're going to live forever. Jesus is always going to be here to heal our physical bodies. But notice as they began to do that, they began to think, well, we deserve this. We've done something to make the Son of God come to our house, our, our town. And to emphasize that, and the arrogance that really is seen in that, notice in verse 23, Jesus actually quotes Isaiah chapter 14. When the king of Babylon, with his high opinion of himself, said that I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and make myself like the Most High. Here, even as Jesus has spoken before to the king of Babylon, so he says to these, You will be brought down to Sheol, 
far, uh, uh, far beyond the reaches of the pit. Let us understand that Sheol is the place of the dead. It often refers to the grave, but understand that the Gospels always refer to it as hell. That is always what it is pointing to. And here Jesus is making a very sharp contrast between heaven, place of blessedness forever, and a place of eternal torment. And the reason is because he wants to bring the people back to reality. That instead of saying, well, let's go out and put a sign up out at the, uh, at the city line and say, welcome to Capernaum, the hope and the, the home and the headquarters of the ministry of the Messiah. You need to understand that you're in danger of not repenting. Which, yes, is obviously shows forth their pride, but it shows forth their refusal to hear and think about the condition of a heart that would refuse to repent. And I want you to see that because Christ wants us to understand what it says about them and their spiritual condition so we will not be prone to think that we ourselves are different from this. Brothers and sisters, how would things be different if we understood what repentance was? Is on seeing it, we would do everything we could to go and reconcile with our God. And I want you to note that what's taking place here is that these are the things these cities never conceived doing. And that's why he compares Chorazin and Bethsaida to Tyre and Sidon. Now, mind you, Tyre's probably more famous than Sidon, but both of them were Phoenician cities well known for their wealth and greed, but also just extreme cruelty. In fact, in Isaiah 23 and Joel 3 and Amos 1, those are on your sermon notes this morning, we are told that the people of Tyre sold the people of Israel as slaves to Egypt and to Edom, uh, the descendants of Esau. And also we find that in Revelation chapter 17 through 19 that they are the ones who serve as the example of the great Babylon. The one who worked commerce in human souls and would trade anything. I want you to know that these sinful actions and the success that was from the Lord that he gave them is what made them proud and hardened their heart. And that's why Israel despised them. But let us understand as we hear at the end of verse 21, pardon me, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. That having heard this woe, this inevitable word of the end of those who refuse to take the word and the work of Christ to heart, those who would choose death and darkness, that the natural expression of them would have been to repent and would have been the same. Really, as we see in Jonah chapter 3, where the Ninevites had a physical manifestation of repentance as they put on sackcloth and ashes, not just the people, but the king. But let us understand that as that's true of Chorazin and Bethsaida, the same is true in regards to Capernaum and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you might say, well, that's just kind of overdoing it. Because Sodom and Gomorrah are those 
who have been forever remembered as the recipients of the judgment of God because of the blindness that they had to their own deviant sin and unspeakable wickedness. Jesus is telling us that they would have remained because if they had the light that you had, they would have been filled with such revulsion over the sight of their sin and they would have repented while Capernaum, there's no change in you. You don't see anything. You don't begin to grieve over your sin. Again, it's J.C. Ryle who tells us of this. Let us remember the cities named by our Lord, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. That they were probably no worse than other Jewish towns. And at all events were probably far better and more moral than Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. But he said, because of this, let us understand And let us observe that the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are to be in the lowest hell because they heard the gospel yet did not repent. And I want you to let this come into your mind because the comparison that we find here in verses 22 and 24 with people who had gone to synagogue, people who had known the word of God, and now the Messiah is in their very presence telling them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand right now. He said it would be more bearable or more tolerable for them than for you. And that's something that we see even with Chorazin, that everything that they could find of it now was total ruins. In fact, the destruction of Capernaum was so severe that the actual location of it was often long a matter of dispute. But let us understand that while this is frightening that we do need to ask ourselves the question, how much does this speak to the church? That given the great privilege to be a part of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, His kingdom manifested on earth, not in buildings, but in the people in which the Holy Spirit inhabits, that we who in this time and place in history know our God and have His grace lavished upon us, That we are people who hear the word on a regular basis. That we are exposed to it and we know this truth. But when we hear, do we listen to our word, the words of Christ, and know that we ourselves are in grave danger if we claim to be his and know nothing of repentance? Do we hear Christ and understand the danger that we are in because we are saturated with the gospel that these never had And at times it falls on our ears as something that is common. There was one commentator this past week probably gave me, I think it was G. Campbell Morgan, who said that the only only unpardonable sin is refusing the forgiveness freely offered by God. The only unpardonable sin is refusing the forgiveness freely offered by our God. So understanding the advantage of the light that we have been given, that is what our judgment comes upon, the light that we have been given, and whether we have believed or not. With this understanding, let us take up the responsibility that is ours, to be able to hear the word today, and to humble ourselves, and to freely go before the Lord and repent, knowing that he forgives. Not because this is something that appeases him, 
but so that we may know a taste more of the delight of the life that he gives to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, may this be our heart and our desire as we hear the word, he who has ears, let him hear. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our great God, it is a great responsibility that we are given. Help us, O Lord, to partake of it, knowing that you have given the strength, you have given the heart, you have given the mind that is able to turn to these. Help us to be a people who ask for your grace, not only to repent, but to live and to find joy in you, O Heavenly Father. For you are God who gives greatly to your people abundantly, more than we could ever ask or think. Bless us this morning. And apply these truths to our hearts and minds and let us practice them in our lives indeed with great joy for Jesus' sake. Amen.